Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. I'm your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. And today we're going to be taking a look at Motley Crue's second album, Shout at the Devil. And this was really their breakthrough major label album. Um, they got together with producer Tom Werman. They recorded from April to July 1983 in Cherokee Studios, Hollywood, with Jeff Workman being the engineer. The album was released on September 26th. It immediately sells 200,000 copies in the first two weeks and will go on to sell 4 million copies. So this is the album that takes them from being an opening act to being able to headline theaters and sets them up to be a band that is capable of headlining arenas with their follow-up release. So general thoughts about Shout at the Devil. Uh, this is one of my favorite heavy metal albums from the 1980s. Um, and it was fun to revisit it because uh, I forgot how much, I mean, there was not a single song that I didn't know all the words to. There was not a single riff that I couldn't hum. Uh, there's so many memories of listening to it as a kid. Um, and, uh, and it's actually a lot, it's a little more complicated than I thought it was as a kid. You know what I mean? I guess maybe I was, you know, you're, I guess, 13, 14 or whatever, and not really paying much attention to it, but there's a lot more going on in it than I realized. Um, I'm interested by the, I discovered a couple old reviews of it where everybody was like, you know, Rolling Stone and Village Voice called it stupid and cliched. And I was thinking this is actually not cliched. Right. Um, compared to a lot <laughs> yep. of stuff that is cliched. You know what I mean? I'd listen to this. 18 more times more than like the first rat album. You know what I mean? There's so much more <laughs> lyrically, you know what I mean? Than um, anything else. So I feel like it's sort of underappreciated by other people, but um, I mean, it's Motley Crue, man. It's guys that wore makeup and put a pentagram on their albums. I mean, they obviously weren't really worried about critical acclaim. You know, so, it's, it's funny. We, we talked about the pentagram a little bit. We started to get into it on the Too Fast for Love podcast. And like clockwork in this past week, Lil Nas X comes out with the Satan shoes mm -hmm. that have the bronze pentagram, the drop of human blood, and 666 of them available. <laughs> I mean, genius right combining yeah. uh kiss putting the drops of blood in the comic book motley Crue's pentagram iron maidens number of the beast 666 i mean the guy is a master professional troll of right-wing conservatives <laughs> he really is so true <laughs> yeah okay so, Mike, your general thoughts about Shout? Yeah, I I haven't listened to it you know, much in, in recent years, but I listened to it a lot this week. And I was reminded of the fact that how, you know, in 34 minutes, you know, they, they, they accomplished so much. I mean, this is really like the gateway between like, you know, L.A. 
you know, we should call it, you know, pre-metal and, and, and glam and that kind of stuff. And we talk about stars and all these other bands and, you know, bands, you know, that were, you know, of the era. And this, this really is the blueprint for you know, what metal would become in a way, in my opinion. I think there's a lot of things that wind up on other artists, you know, records and, um, but, you know, it's concise songwriting. I mean, it, no song is probably over, you know, three minutes or so. Um, and no song, you know, gets old as you listen to it, you don't really grow of it um and just uh, again a pounding rhythm section uh, a great guitar player which you know people probably disagree with me on that and, you know mick mars might not be what you know he might be you know robin ford on guitar but he's great at what he does um and vince is obviously a great showman he delivers the lyrics it, it's just really it, it's no wonder this this record sold as much as it did um and it, to me it's also you know years in advance but also only a few years from too fast for love in terms of production it just works i forgot how really good this record is, um, you know, it's it's influential in, in so many ways, and um, you know, it's it's one, it's probably my favorite Motley record. I'll say that at this point. I will second that. It's my favorite Motley record too. Yeah, and uh, I will third that. Yeah, um, it's it's the first Motley record that is really truly a heavy metal record. I mean, the, their debut, mm -hmm. as much as I like it, um, it's much more of a hard rock, power pop, you know, punk hard rock record, not really metal. This is an album where I, you can feel them taking those influences of the new wave of British heavy metal, of Judas Priest, mm -hmm. bands like that, and yet molding them into something that's a little bit more palatable to American taste, a little bit more danceable, a little hookier, a little catchier. And I think a large part of that credit has to go to producer Tom Werman. I've been... Mm. listening to interviews with him this week getting ready for the podcast and it's funny his personality reminds me a lot of kevin valentine's in the oh. sense that he's a very bright guy and you can tell that he's very good at what he does or did and he knows that um He's also one of these guys that just historically, if you look at the history of rock and roll, is one of those Zelig-like guys who always manages to be in the room at the right time, right? So he starts off as an A&R guy. He signs some small band, then he signs Ario Speedwagon. Then he wants to sign the next three bands that he tries to sign. He actually signs Wicked Lester, okay? But then the band breaks up. They say, hey, come see this new thing we're doing. He sees Kiss in embryonic form at, uh, at the loft, wants to sign them, can't convince his boss at Epic Records to mm. do it, okay? Then he's, he tries to get his boss to sign Leonard Skinner. Then he tries to get his boss to sign Rush. Okay. Wow. <laughs> can't, can't do it. So then he, he becomes more of a producer. He becomes the go-to guy if you've got a kick-ass hard rock band that needs to soften the rough edges just enough to be able to write songs that get some radio airplay and make the album go gold or platinum, right? So he works with Ted Nugent, he works mm -hmm. with Molly Hatchet, he works with Blue Oyster Cult, he works with Cheap Trick, and then he gets together with Motley Crue. Initially, 
doesn't want to do the album. He hears Too Fast for Love, says, you know, it's a little sloppier than what I'm when I'm used to, what I like. I don't, you know, but then they play him the demos that they've got for the upcoming album. And he says, okay, I can work with this. Uh, let's, let's take it from there. And he, you know, he's not an engineer that comes from a technical background, but he is a guitar player. He does have a good ear. He has a great sense of song structure and melody and all that. And, uh, you know, he's great for things like additional percussion overdubs. He can actually do that kind of stuff himself, you know, so he relies heavily on uh, his engineer when it comes to getting guitar tones, when it comes to doing things like that, which is why I think, you know, Jeff Workman also mm. deserves mention uh, for the work that he did on this album. Although the two did not get along well on this album. Uh, yeah, I think I, I listened to the same interview. It's it's interesting that uh, Mr. Worman sort of doesn't like a lot of people, um, but it's, just sort of there's sort of a rule that it's like if you meet two a-holes a day you're probably an a-hole too um but i don't i didn't i don't know i can't i can't get a total feel but he goes off on what d snyder and on uh and on the producer or the engineer as well well um, the, the story he tells about jeff workman is that he loaned him five thousand dollars they right. never got back and then jeff workman skipped town so you know yeah. that that's enough to sour any uh relationship D. Schneider is a different case. I mean, there's plenty of people he doesn't get along with, too. Mm. Um, you know, I, he complained about the fact that uh, he felt like Stay Hungry should have had more edge to it, should have been harder, more aggressive sounding, didn't have enough bass. Mm. Okay, but that's kind of exactly what Tom Werman was paid to take away from a band just enough to make them a huge commercial success to the point where when D Schneider said, mm. okay, well, we're going to re-record stay hungry. And they did. And instead of selling 7 million copies, it sold 50,000. So, you know, who, who's right at the end of the day, I don't know. You know, to interject to just a, a personal um, you know, relationship that I have with some guys that work with Tom Werman, I won't mention the name of the band, but this is a band that, you know, they, they, you know, had the unfortunate uh, opportunity to be, you know, if we call it unfortunate, it was a band that wanted to sound like Creedence Clearwater Revival, but okay. they got signed to uh, Geffen, you know, and they were working with Tom Worman in 1980-45, you know, probably the wrong time to want to try to sound like CCR, right? Yeah. Yeah, but here's the thing, like, you know, those guys are trying that, and they were, you know, they brought in like a vintage drum kit, and the bass player brought in the vintage bass, and they're like, no, you got to play this bass, and we're going to buy you a new drum kit, it's going to sound like, you know, da-da-da, and, you know, and you listen to CCR records, there's a, there's a, it's a, there's a fullness to those records, there's a lot of bass, it, it's a lot of bottom end, you know, anyway, point being, there were just some funny exchanges between uh, the members of the band and Tom, where he would say, Okay, you know, you're starting to slide on the bass on the wrong fret or the wrong note. And the bass player was like, listen, bro, I, I didn't even start on a note. I started behind the nut. You know, I'm not even starting on a note. You know, just, you know, it just went, you know, it's no wonder that record William was doomed. Mm. Uh, but here were guys, the guys that were signed to Geffen at the time when you know, being signed to Geffen meant everything. You know, it meant you were going to the you know to the moon with it. And it didn't work out for those guys. But their complaints again about the the, the mix were there's no bass on it. It sounds like all the Tom Worman records. And I get that, but you know they were trying to do something else, but they had no control. They were 
under the thumb of the, of the label and that's the way it went and mm-hmm. boom you know that's why you never heard of this band i don't mention this because i know them they're fun guys and they're great guys and they had success later in other bands but you know it wasn't the best situation for everybody if you're going to work with tom and but in other cases much like the record we're talking about today it's it worked you know it did. And, you know, we should say, too, he really became one of the defining producers of the 80s hard yeah. rock sound. I mean, he produced Dawkin and Poison and Love, Hate and Kicks. And you just go on and on. And, you know, I know what, what they, they're saying. Part of it is, too, records in general during that period didn't have a ton of bass um, just because they were being pressed on vinyl. We You know, we've talked about that as well. Yeah. But... Um, it's funny. Uh, I don't know if you, did you hear the interview, John, where uh, Tom Worman was complaining about a comment that Nikki Six made in the Heroin Diaries, where he talks about um, how it was left to Nikki to work to get Vince's vocals together because Tom was off casually chatting on, on phone calls in the studio. And, and uh, Tom Worman said about that, he, he called th- that, uh, that um, excerpt from the book, stunningly inaccurate. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, no one, he, uh, so we don't go off on a make this the Tom Worman podcast, but it is interesting how um, much a producer will try. You know, I mean, he's he's pointing out how much he has contributed to the record and how much bands will turn their backs on a producer as soon as something goes wrong. You know what I mean? Like the, mm-hmm. the producer doesn't know, you know what I mean? And that's, um, you know, what he knows what works for him. So it's, it's interesting that he winds up... Um, you know, people talking crap about them because producers are easy targets. You know what I mean? Right, right. But also it's interesting, one comment that he made, and this will be the last thing I'll say before we jump into the songs, is, you know, there's a philosophy that a producer is supposed to help a band be the best band that it can be, be the best version of that band. And he has said... I admit, I wasn't necessarily that kind of producer. I was the kind of producer who would take the songs and try to mold them as close to the best versions of those songs that I could make them to the point where I would like them better than I did when I found them. Yeah, and that's uh, that's interesting. I've always wondered about that with producers. I, I think producing is one of, it's, it's, it's mystical. I mean, not to go on a tangent, we were in our, um, we were in the, we were uh, recording this last week and um, we would record, you know, a take and the, um, the, the guy recording us would be like, okay, sounds like a good take. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? It was a terrible take. You know, it was, that was, ter- you know, I can, I can name you three places where we messed up, you know, and he wasn't a producer. He's just an engineer. He's just running the board. You know what I mean? So he has no idea. You know, so it's it's interesting how what what poor things we place on these producers is, you know, how much do we want them to hold our hand versus how much do we want them to, you know, stay out of our way, you know. So I don't know. It must be a very hard job to do that. And then to have to, you know what I mean, to be in that position where you can actually say something and winds up. I don't know. It's it's interesting because you become sort of like the gatekeeper on other people's creative process. 
or they or they step in the way of the creative process or they you know they take exception over things that they really you know they really shouldn't stick their nose in you know i think the problem with too with you know it's not a problem but you know the the issue sometimes with producers is, is when they need to be an engineer at the same time because they're focused on two different things you know mm -hmm. and what are they going to do um but you know we spoke previously before you know we we launched into the podcast you know if you listen to the demos you know that came out you know later you know for this record they don't sound vastly different from you know the album, but there are you know subtle differences in terms of the arrangements. Um, the, and I, I could see where what wound up on the record was you know I'm, I'm sure Tom's you know direction in terms of making a better song out of a good song. Uh, but also too, if you listen to the demos, there are you know pitch issues with you know the vocals on the demos. You know, so was he if he wasn't involved in the demos and that's what he got, then he obviously made a better product. And whoever it was that was responsible for getting Vince to sing the way he did in the record, they did their job because it works in this record. But on the demos, you can see where this, those, those are the, the kind of differences between the demos and what came out on the finished product. Well, one of those interviews, he goes into a, a long story about how he records, what, three different versions of the song. Well, yeah, so his general standard recording of vocals was he, he would do a minimum of three takes, and then he would comp that down to the best vocal take, and then he would call the guy back in and ask him to sing two more takes and, and you know, just repeat ad infinitum, however long it took to get a, a vocal track that everybody was more or less happy with, and then inevitably there would be a few spots where they would think, well, maybe we can beat that or that's not quite right. And then they would only concentrate on those uh, those portions of the song so that they weren't burning the singer out and he wasn't losing his voice. And yeah, he kind of complains that Vince took so long in the studio. But even that, you know, he mm -hmm. says like, OK, well, so he would take a couple hours on a vocal one day and then a couple more hours on the same song the next day. And, you know, by the end of that, we would wrap it up. You know, so it wasn't it wasn't an egregiously long period of time. I mean, you know, four hours to to get the vocal over two days is is still fairly efficient. I mean, it may not be he you know, he talks about Robin Zander being able to nail a vocal in 10 minutes. And that's great. But not everybody is Robin Zander either. Um, I think it's funny that when they ask people how long it took to make this album, uh, his recollection is six weeks. Vince Neal's recollection is seven months. And, you know, it says on Wikipedia about four months. But yeah. I, I think what the reason is, is aside from the fact that there were a lot of drugs going on at, at that time, is that they started recording the album and then Nikki got into a fairly serious car accident in which he had an iron pin put into his shoulder and he was on... Percocet and Oxy yeah. and his hand, arm was in a sling. So they had to stop recording for a little while just till Nikki recovered. And then he actually was laying down his bass parts with his hand in a sling, which can't be a whole lot of uh, fun, you know? And, and, and again, Tom complains about how long it took Nikki to do his bass parts, but even that, <laughs> you know, was not more than two to four hours per track. Yeah, yeah. And everybody thinks it's so easy. You just go in the studio and you play like a band and it's done. You know, it doesn't always work out that way. Right. And Tom has a great quote about that, too. Is he goes, as much as people want to romanticize, you know, what you want to do is have a band play live in the studio. He goes, when you do that more often than not, it sounds terrible. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, yes. Anyhow. All right, let's get into it, right? Yeah, so the album kicks off with one of the all-time great 
introductions. And Nikki Six has said that this was partially inspired by uh, David Bowie, some of the stuff he did on Diamond Dogs. In the beginning. Uh, it's it's great. I mean, that's my, it's, you know, that's wired right into my teenage brain. I mean, I love post-apocalyptic anything. And you get an album that starts with a post-apocalyptic, you know, thing about how there's a group of people, you know, it's every Mad Max, Boy and His Dog, you know, canical for Leibowitz even, you know what I mean? Like, you know, there's going to be this uh, great, you know, um, so it, it, it nabbed me from the beginning. It's a little vague. I mean, upon listening to it at the age of 50, you're sort of like, there's a couple of jumps in the story where you're like, what? But it still works. You know what I mean? It's, it's more of, I would almost argue, it's a little more of a sets the tone than, you know, is, it has to necessarily be a uh, great story or whatever. So I, I love it. It's absolutely great. Even the music bed underneath, albeit a tad cheesy and doesn't do anything else with the record at, at all. And even the abrupt cut between that and the opening, you know, riff to uh, shout at the devil. It's still great. I love it. Mike. I love it too, because for all the reasons that John mentioned it, yeah, I almost feel like I've, you know, gone into movie theater. I've got some popcorn and a fully lighted Coca-Cola. I'm, I'm going to watch like, you know, the best, you know, action, you know, sci-fi drama movie that I've ever going to see. Um, but I think it also sets the pace and the tone for the record because it you know, talks about things like dreams and having strength, you know, it, it works for me. And it's probably the last thing, you know, when you, if you're like a, you know, a metal fan or a hard rock fan, when you drop the needle, like this is probably the last thing you expect to hear. You know, we look, cover it. So, you know, like I say, it's number black. It's like, you're expecting some scary stuff. Well, you get some scary stuff, you get some great lyrics and you get some great songs, but this kind of, you know, pulls you out of the you know, the band mode and gives you like the intro into what you're gonna what you're about to you know, embark on in terms of the journey when you listen to the record and I think it it works great um, I think you know sure some of the effects in the intro were kind of you know dated and whatnot but it, it works I mean it absolutely works it's a great way to start the record it's a it's a bold approach you know to a band which was their sophomore effort and then we're gonna start the record with an intro we're not really with a song so to speak hats off to those guys for doing that I think it works and it sets the pace for the record. That is a good point. It's a, it's a risk to do that, to put yourself out there mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. I think you're, you guys both hit on the point. It's very cinematic. Um, mm -hmm. I think musically it's probably Jeff Workman's baby to a large extent because uh, Tom Worman talked about how he more or less left that up to him to make all the, the strange low rumbly ghosty type noises happen and things like that. But, um, you know, lyrically, again, like any road warrior movie that's ostensibly about the future, it's really about the present and a, a, a reflection of what's going on. And what was going on was that there was severe economic depression in the United States and there was white flight and cities were decaying and the crime rate was rising. And there was definitely this feeling in this country, you know, that it was the age of the super predator and that life in the big city was becoming more dangerous than ever. And that we had as a nation had fallen and dark forces had were taking over and the intro taps into all of those feelings um in in a kind of messianic cargo cult sort of way which 
you know, the whole idea that we've lost our way and society is in a state of decay, but there is still a chance for the new generation to, like the phoenix, rise up from the ashes and become born anew. And, mm -hmm. you know, what a, yeah, what an amazing way to, to turn out the lights and open the curtain and put you in the driver's seat to enjoy the rest of this album. Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i just have a question too because i was looking at the uh the cd liner notes and it just uh, shows music uh jeff workman narration nikki six is that really nikki no that's jeff it i'm is. sure okay. nikki wrote the lyrics and um jeff uh yeah read the yeah. words which again because okay, here we go on the record yeah it's uh music uh, jeff workman lyrics nikki six so okay yeah a lot of drugs back then yeah <laughs> that was yeah, but your cool intro, awesome. Yeah. So, shout at the devil. Uh, music, well, I'll start musically. It's got that great, I mean, I remember figuring out that riff and being like, it can't be this simple. You know what I mean? But it is that simple, but it is that badass. You know what I mean? That, you know, the, the one and the four and the five and then the pentatonic, whatever. Um, and then... Uh, the, I mean, in that the it's interesting that you mentioned about the fact that uh, Worman was like a big, um, uh, not anti-bass, but he doesn't really do it. There's a lot of stuff going on with Nikki's playing that isn't in the forefront, but you can still barely hear with the, um, and I love the little, you know, the slides that he's doing with the, you know, that's cool as hell. Um, and then, um, you know, just it's, uh even the, even the lead parts sort of have almost like a Middle Eastern feel. That's something I wanted to talk about Mick Mars's guitar playing. There's sort of almost like a Middle Eastern influence on his stuff. Um, which on this really, album in particular, yes. Yeah, on this album, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, lyrically, it's fantastic. It's like the uber superhero that is coming into, the, into vogue at that time, the grim and gritty, you know, superheroes, you know. Good point. Um, you know, he's sort of half anti-hero, you know, he's a knife in your back, he's rage, but he's also the blood stain on the stage, he's the wolf screaming lonely in the night, and it, you know, and then at 50, you know, at the age of 50, I'm sort of like, well, who is he? You know what I mean? Like, is he me? Is he supposed to be who I am, or is he supposed to be, you know, the one character that's going to stand up or lead us to shout at the devil, you know? So um, my interpretation of that is completely different. I, I, I see that as Nikki naming all of the different types of evil that one should stand up against, right? Like, so when he says he's the blood stain on the stage, it makes me think of uh, an interview I heard with John Lennon one time where he said the Beatles are playing in a club and there's this guy that was uh, heckling them and slagging them off in the audience or whatever and was trying to get on stage. And John Lennon just hit the guy full force with the neck of his guitar and the guy went down into the crowd and John Lennon said, I saw blood. I, I saw him go, you know, back into the crowd. I never saw him again. For all I know, I murdered the guy, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, lots of rock people have talked about how when you're playing on stage, you could be hit with something. You could be cut. You could be hurt. You've got so much adrenaline in your blood. You don't feel the pain until hours after the show when you go like, oh my God, I'm like severely wounded here. And I think it's that, that whole 
that's what he's talking about. Okay, so he's saying that is the center of evil. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was my interpretation as a kid. You know what I mean? But now I'm sort of, I was playing around with the idea that maybe it's sort of like a superhero. Um, I do think you're 100% right that it's reflexive of, reflective of the anti-hero thing that was very prevalent with the Road Warrior, with mm -hmm. Watchmen, Dark Knight, you know, all that kind of stuff was right from that era and I think is reflected on this album. Yeah. I mean, I could, yeah, it's, it's interesting because the lyrics are very, I mean, the lyrics are pretty intense for a heavy metal album. You know what I mean? Like, I can't think of anything that's particularly this hardcore coming out from anybody else. You know what I mean? At that time. No. And I was thinking about this too. It's like, it's almost the anti uh, grunge thing. Although grunge hadn't really come along yet, but in terms of you think about Pearl Jam hanging on and milking every syllable of the line, I'm alive, right? Here, mm. Vince Neil's lyrics are like, <laughs> are like a machine gun attack where they're just firing mental images at you so fast you can't even process what he's saying. It's almost like rap in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's so intense and effective. Yeah, so much use of imagery in, in writing. I mean, that's, you know, that would have gotten you an A in any English class, you know, in 12th grade, you know what I mean? So it's, it's really, it's really impressive. You know what I mean? Like just listening to it again, I'm like, wow, that's really beyond even what I appreciated when I was a teenager. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a perfect song. I mean, it's, you know, it's whatever there's, it's one of my, somewhere in my top 50 songs of my entire life, somewhere in there. Mike. Yeah. To me, it's, it's no wonder that they, you know, started off the album with this song it's a killer you know song to open the record with it's also cool that you know it's the title of the album it, you know it, it, that works as well um you know, john mentioned the bass slides at the beginning which you know we kind of talked about you know can you hear the bass in, in a lot of cases you can those are killer and those like you know guitar runs with you know the pick slides in the beginning how do you do two things at once i don't know but you know obviously mick does it um but it, much like you know uh, you know the previous band that we spoke about in podcast kiss there's a ton of space in these songs mm -hmm. and it works you know mm -hmm. um but uh you know also too there's you know, a couple of things one of the things i mentioned with this album sort of like a gateway between like you know the 70s and the 80s you know they'll reference certain things like to me i want to hear that ba -ba -da -ba -da -da riff i think of led zeppelin's no quarter which is a great mm -hmm. riff mm -hmm. but then you've also got a great rhythm section you know, nikki and tommy play together so well you've got that you know sing along shout along chorus which is killer um, it, it's no secret that, you know, the Nicky's an Aerosmith fan. I mean, you know, there's also a lot of references to Aerosmith on this record. They, they pull yes. even like certain lyrics, like round and round. In Seasons of Wither, just yeah. a puck in the street. Yeah. Yeah, it's killer. Um, yeah, but also, too, again, their songwriting is so efficient because, you know, if you put on this record, they say so much in so little time. It's only like over half an hour long, but all the songs are so great and they never get old. You never sit there going, when's the song going to end? There's, I mean, that's how do you put that much entertainment into a half an hour record? It's amazing. Yeah, their their hooks come so fast and furious, like musically, like in maybe half the time that a Kiss hook would take to come, and yeah. then the turnarounds are so brilliant too. Mm -hmm. And again, I mentioned this before. You know, um, I referenced you know bands like Def Leppard. You know, which you know, think of them what you will. But sometimes their pre-courses could have been a chorus in, in a way. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things with Motley where their pre-courses damn well could have been a chorus. Mm. Um, you know, 
but the joint the john's point about um you know who are they speaking about if you listen to the demo it's in the first person right it is in the first person yeah and then vince goes into this whole thing about you know why because i'm in you know i'm in hell i'm i'm evil whatever um, it doesn't work it doesn't in my opinion it, you know this this is what works what's on the record yeah this is that's the big difference between the demo and this and thank god they changed it that way because it's so much better the way it what's is. the yeah. line in the seasons of wither hill stand and deliver will stand and deliver we'll stand and okay deliver. so maybe that's where i get it wrong because that that line to me i mean literally that's i'll actually say that to people you know when they're like saying like, oh, that's a lot of stuff to do you know it's like in the seasons of wither i'll stand and deliver yeah um, oh it's okay. classic it's a great line. It's a, it's so maybe that's where I made the mistake to tie it to. I mean, again, it's image imagery. You can interpret it the way you want. I, I I still stand by my interpretation that it's a grim and gritty character. And I also think that you know, not to jump in, but um, this is songwriter and then another guy singing the lyrics, right? You know, because they they've got to somehow interpret, you know, become somebody else, and, and, and produce their vision of you know what they want the lyric to be in terms of you know cadence um, and melody and phrasing, um, and that's one of the problems that I, for me with this record, thank goodness that they, they printed the lyrics. Yeah. Because a lot of times things get lost in translation when Vince is singing the lyrics. Like I, I remember you know, getting Kiss Alive and, and tr trying to sing along the deuce and I was singing all the wrong words. And so I really, <laughs> you know, I, I had no idea what was going on. You know, Vince has a, a unique vocal style, but at the same time, he's not the best at, you know, pronouncing <laughs> the lyrics as they are. Mm -hmm. and, um, I, to the point where I question, like, are the lyrics that are in the record really what, you know, what were written or is what Vince saying? Is he saying the right words sometimes? You know, either way. It, 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 there's, it, there's a few discrepancies. Yeah, okay. for sure. Okay, we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah great song. Great opinion. Later, actually, but good, yeah. Um, so musically, this song, I think, owes a bit to the Dio song Invisible, which came out mm. earlier uh, it came out in May of 83 and this album came out in fall of 83 and just the right that's the invisible riff um just gonna throw that out there the you know those the the idea that maybe those bands were aware of each other maybe Nikki copped that or was influenced by it in some way um to me, the song is about acknowledging the, the universality of uh, the negative aspects of the human condition, be it anger, rage, fear, loneliness, and saying that, yes, we can overcome these aspects of being human. It is so simple and so straightforward that it's almost like proto-industrial, right? I mean, because because of how it repeats itself and they just repeat the first verse verbatim when they go back to the ver first verse, which is something they do a right. lot on this record. Right. Yes. Third verse, same as the first. Yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is interesting. The other thing they do on this song, which is interesting, that they've never done on any other song, and I can't even think of another band that has done on any other song, is... As the, they're fading the chorus, they completely change up the feel that they're playing the riff, mm -hmm. right? As the chorus uh, starts fading, and okay. like, what a great, what a great way to vary it just enough, just to keep your ears perked up and go like, whoa, wait, what are they doing? You know, 
Brilliant. Yeah. Funny you say that because I, I, you know, I play in a band that um, we had done that on, on a couple of our songs and, you know, now I, I realize that, you know, the, the, the drummer was also a fan of Tommy Lisa's. No, no wonder that we, we did that on several of our, of our songs. In our yeah. <laughs> so now I know where it comes from. Thanks, Dave. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, there's the idea that, you know, you look at the record, right? You know, it's got the, you know, the upside down, or the inverted pentagram and da, da, da. And it's dark and it's supposedly evil. And this is also, you know, at the beginnings of the, the PMRC stuff, which is, you know, what you think of it. You know, but here's, you know, if you really, again, if you don't really, if you take it at face value, it's one thing. But if you delve into the lyrics, you know, shout at the devil. It's shout, you know, against, you know, all those things. So it's so easy for things to be misconstrued um, when it comes to, you know, when things get into, you know, the debate between music and politics. And it's no wonder that, you know, the debates and all that stuff went all over the place when it came to, you know, labels on records and all that kind of stuff. I mean, what a mess that was. Oh, yeah. What yeah. an awful mess that was. Right. And we should mention, too, this album came with the disclaimer that it may contain backwards messages. I know. I know. I remember that. And they purposely recorded some just so they could say that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyhow. Moving on, the one-two punch, right? I mean, Shout of the Devil, one of the all-time great rock albums, uh, anthems. And then mm-hmm. I-, I was thinking about this. It's like when you go to a concert and you're a young kid, the two things you want to go to a concert for are to raise up your fist and shout along with the crowd at a song the band is playing. And then you go to see hot girls and maybe talk to them and you know go from there. But So then we go right into Looks That Kill. Right. This song, again, is pretty much perfect. Uh, the riff is great. Even that that opening lead, the sort of squeal, the you know what I mean? I yeah, love that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and the verse is, um, I mean, lyrically, there's kind of, you know, the again, a lot of cool imagery. She's, she's a cool black. Uh, she moves like a cat. She's a number 13. You know, those are those are again not cliched lyrics. You know what I mean? In terms of, um, I mean, moves like a cat is kind of cliched. You know, and probably been used to death. Um, I love the, and then I love just that riff on the chorus, even though it feels like it should be wonky. That do 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 do. You know what I mean? It sounds like it should be like a um, a show tune or something, but it's yeah. still. It still works. Um, well, the, you heard the Tom Worman interview. He says, well, he, well, he talks about it, the fact that it's it's vaguely kind of James Bondish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They were aware of that. I mean, this but, whole song is very cinematic oh, in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the, you know, she's got the, you know, the gang chorus, you know, the sing-along chorus and all that kind of stuff. I really, I really like it. It's uh, another good, really good one. No, no complaints. One of my favorites. So killer, yeah. I mean, again, like you said, Dave, the, the, the one-two punch, I mean, that riff is kick-ass. The drums on this track are re- relentless. Um, and again, there's that Tommy Lee drumming style where it's like, you know, the, the bass drum and the snare kind of, you know, coincide at the same time. It's like four on the floor, kick-ass. You know, and again, I mentioned this is sort of like the blueprint for, you know, albums that would, would follow. I mean, always there's the ride symbol in the pre-chorus, which is killer. The shout along chorus is, is great. Um, you know, there's the there's those crazy weird transitional riffs, you know, between the, the second double chorus, um, you know, that you know that were it, it's it's a great arrangement. It's really great songwriting. Uh, the solo is classic Mick Mars with those descending licks that he does, which 
now that I hear this record again, I'm going to revisit some of those licks because there's a lot of great licks in this record that I want to, I want to, I want to relearn because I'm sure I've done some of those in the past. Great pinch harmonics, like you know John mentioned at the beginning. Um, but you know, I have a question too about the lyrics um, because you know, you know we've mentioned lyrics as a theme for for albums, you know and. Some of the lyrics on this you know, record might be somewhat vague, but it's not as sort of out there as like some of the stuff you hear on like a Led Zeppelin record in a way, you know, like you can still kind of get the essence of what they're saying, but it's not like you have to go read a book and learn, you know, what they're trying to you know, say in these lyrics, you know? All you got to do is read The Hobbit. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Lord of the Rings. And then yeah, well, you, you might know. be able to make sense of that Led Zeppelin you know, album. Yeah. That takes a lot more time than a 30 minute album, but uh, anyhow. Uh, but, but I have a specific question about the lyrics. Okay. Um, um, and it's just, it's a matter of, you know, what Vince delivered on the record. It's the, uh, the lyric, uh, the church strikes midnight. Yeah. I mean, on the demo, it sounds like the church strikes midnight. But on the record, I'm still hearing the clock strikes midnight. There's a weird phrase in there. Okay. Yeah. That, I'd have to listen to that again. I'm not 100% sure. Okay. But yeah, badass. Song. I heard. I heard badass. church. I actually purposely listened to this with the lyrics on it. The i, you know, the iTunes lyric playing, and it it says church. But you could be right. It could be clock. I don't know. That's in my brain. I have it burned in as church. But that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The the riff is just a monster. Right. And I mean, yeah. it's not anything that hasn't been done before. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of reminiscent of Cold Gin or Hell's Bells, where you're playing upon, mm. you know, a pedal point and going from A to D to G, or in this case, G to F to, yeah, the chance. Yes, yeah, they're tuned down, down a whole step. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's just a monster of a riff, and it's, it's so well done. Um, I love that yeah, the transitions, the James Bond type part, and then the way that it goes from the James Bond part back to the riff is such a weird syncopation uh, that, like, I mean, I still every time I, I hear it, I go, "Wait, what? What? How did they?" Okay. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. True. Very true. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But yeah, no, that's, that's okay. Um, you know, to me, lyrically, this song is sort of about the how likening a mating ritual between a man and a woman to stalking a potentially deadly apex predator, right? <laughs> that, that has everything to do with fear of women. You know, I mean, this, this whole thing, she'll slice you apart. If you don't get her game, you might not make it back. You know, like you better score with this woman or she on, on all kinds of levels is going to annihilate your ego and kill you, you know, metaphorically, if not physically. And, um, and it's brilliant the way that plays upon that that fear um the one line that's funny to me is she's a number 13 right because mm. originally on the demo i think vince says and would you believe me she's only 13 and i could see the record company oh. saying oh hell no she isn't <laughs> we are changing that uh to and believe oh, okay. me you she's a number 13 which is just vague enough that they have a certain degree of plausible mm. deniability um 
it's <laughs> it's interesting to note also the, the video and the and the plot of of the video because this the song is so cinematic it lends itself to to a video um especially that one bridge that brilliant brilliant, brilliant. i mean yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but like it's really a post feminist post first wave feminist video right oh, in yeah. terms of hard rock because you've got motley crew being the tough macho post apocalyptic dudes that are putting women in cages and then you have the <laughs> sort of japanese looking alpha woman superhero that frees all of them and defeats Motley Crue. So, you know, as, as much as Motley Crue gets shit for being this male sexist pig band, there are always these elements there where they're like acknowledging feminism and, and, and things like that on top of it, that, that I think it, it's too easy to dismiss them as being merely sexist rock pigs. Yeah, and again, there's that depth you know, that really gets overlooked with, with this band. You know, and, and prime example is the PMRC. There was I, I could see where they would look at the record initially and say, "This is wrong. Everything about this is wrong." Granted, there are some violent lyrics on the record, but at the same time, too, you're not seeing the whole picture. You know, you've got to look at the big picture. And, and great point, Dave, for sure on on, on the looks of the video. As being an example of that, yeah. Bastard. I love it. I love this, the chorus. I love how, I mean, again, it's just so, um, so much imagery in, in the lyrics um, and then just such a fast delivery of the lyrics. Again, the way that Vince Neil delivers the lyrics really fast with the out go the lights and goes a knife, you know, I mean, again, it's over the top. Like I remember hearing it as a kid and being like, I'm, well, I'm not that violent. You know what I mean? Like I would never want to, you know, but it, and um you know, but at the same time, it's, um, it definitely plays into your brain. I remember thinking of a few bastards myself, you know what I mean? So oh, I remember listening to the song and fantasizing about, you know, a, a gym teacher or two I might've had over the years. Yeah, or... I don't know, maybe, <laughs> but you know what I mean? So it's, it's definitely like it, again, it's sort of a grim and gritty thing that wires right into my brain as a teenager, you know, that's almost a little shocked by it, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, even that line, make it quick, blow off his head is just, you know, that's, um, that's horrible, but it's the way he delivers it so off the cuff, you know, it's, it's really good. And th I mean, it's really powerful. Um, and then, you know, good gang chorus, you know, and the, and the, the way that they all, um, and real sing along. Um, I'm trying to think musically, was there anything that no, just the quick breaks, you know, the, da, 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 you know, I'll go the, you know, just the delivery or whatever. A lot of space like Mike talks about between the uh, chorus and that kind of stuff. So it's a good, powerful, strong song. Um, grabs my, you know, holds my attention the whole way through it and then has lyrics that are shocking enough that I'm sort of like, you know, listening for more. But again, like all the stuff in the album, very cinematic, you know, the lyrics are a little cliched but at the same time they're just so over the top that you're like wow okay i'm gonna keep listening mike yeah i mean you know, you know uh 
lyric wise, you know, it seems kind of dark on, on the surface, but then again, maybe it's about, you know, a relationship they had with, you know, somebody that was trying to work with a band and, you know, sold them short or something. You never know. And I don't think these are guys that are sitting on the street corners with knives and, you know, trying to kill people, you know, they're just trying to have a good time. Um, but they know how to write a good song. They know how to, you know, pr you know provide some imagery, you know, to, to, to music, which, which works. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, there's lines like, don't you try to rape me? I don't think they're talking about, you know, being molested as a kid. Maybe they're talking about just being raped in terms of, you know, trying to have a management deal. You never know. Yeah, I think on some interview that I read somewhere, they said it was about, maybe it was on Wikipedia, so I don't know how truthful, okay. but they, they did say that it's, you know, when they, when challenged by the PMRC, they said it was about someone who'd screwed over the band. Yeah, so th this song really caught the attention of the PMRC. It made their filthy 15. Um, oh, okay. And it is about the band's first manager. And he apparently absconded with the total advance they got for Shout at the Devil, wow. which is what prompted them that? to their, their first manager. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, I hear these lines about you're the king of the sleaze, don't try to don't you try to rape me. And I think to myself um, a number of things. One, if you look at the history of rock and roll and and managers, there mm -hmm. is a tendency for the best managers in the business uh, of male acts to be gay, right? And Plato yeah. and Socrates have talked about the fact that the ultimate undefeatable army would be an army of gay men, right? Because they would all be in love with each other. They'd all be willing to die for each other. And the possibility that this first manager may have also been gay and may have come on to members of the band at some point not that unlikely. Um, you know, I think there is a dark underbelly of the whole Sunset Strip subculture where you have these young, good-looking guys who have a dream and they don't have two dimes to rub together or a pot to piss in. And when they haven't eaten for days, they are particularly vulnerable to these guys that are essentially sexual predators, you know, that are completely willing to take advantage of them. And you look at a guy like Janie Lane from Warrant that talked publicly about the fact that he was drugged and raped by someone on the, when he was trying to make it on the Sunset Strip. And, you know, I think that is what this song is really about, about that kind of thing and the anger that it engendered from the band. Yeah, okay. And a couple of cool points, you know, from a musical perspective. Um, I, when I heard the drum intro, I thought, who does that remind me of? Uh, if you listen to Aerosmith Rocks, uh, the intro to Lickin' a Promise, Mm. The same kind of, you know, flopping, you know, rolling drum part that kind of leads into this badass riff, which, you know, this obviously does, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, we were talking too about uh, the, the guitar solos and stuff. I mean, Mick does a lot of things where he'll start like, you know, the solo with, you know, straight lead playing and they'll do a harmonized part and it goes somewhere else. And um, one of the things that I was reminded of too in the solo, Mick does this crazy thing with, which I think is unique to him. I can't think of any other guitar player that does this, but like when he plays fast runs, he won't just pick above, you know, the pickups and near the bridge. 
he'll put the you know the pick on the fretboard and pick the notes hmm. which really kind of makes it easier because you know all I have to do is like set the pick on the fretboard and you can go back and forth as much as you want so you can play as fast as you need to I can't remember any other guitar player I've seen that has done that um, which is again something I want to revisit you know when after this podcast and start you know get back into playing guitar again um, to revisit that because it's a great technique and I just can't think of any other guitar player uh, that has done that since or before yeah, that's really interesting. I'll have to look into that myself. Speaking of Mick, uh, God bless the children of the beast. Uh, I like it. It's, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, is it Cracked Mirror that, that Ace Frehley does? Fractured Mirror. Fractured Mirror, oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. Reminded me a little bit of that. I wound up going down, and I never bothered to actually look this up. There is a film from the 70s called bless the children of the beast which is about a bunch of hippie kids that go out and defend a group of bison against being slaughtered or something like that and i was trying to figure out if it somehow was inspired by that i doubt it is um i i mean it's a pretty song mick does some great you know i love his like lead parts and um that kind of stuff over top of it i love it's it's obviously like a mick penned this is shit. Let me show you all the cool stuff I can do. The harmonic tones and the dee 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 dee, you know, and stuff like that. It's really cool. Um, and um, obviously, of course, it's got to end with some sort of satanic message in it or whatever. At least one of the things I found that was interesting is it carries on the theme of the album with In the Beginning, Shout at the Devil. And now we're back to sort of, again, sort of a satanic post-apocalyptic, you know, or God bless the children of the beast, the children of the beast, like, you know, uh, us, you know, that are fighting against the beast at this point, you know, we're what's left over. So, I, you know, I, I liked it again. You know, there's not a, well, there is a stinker on this album, but it's, uh, again, this is one of my, another great one. Like, yeah, I think it's, um, it's cleverly placed because here you've got, you know, four great tunes on the first side. You need, you need a pause, you need a break, you know? So this gives you like sort of, you know, you're getting like this, you know, sort of acoustic sort of um, clean sounding guitar stuff, you know, after you've heard, you know, this bombast of, you know, four bitching, you know, rock tunes. Uh, but also some of the things that I heard too, is I'm always the guy that says, Oh, this song sounds like this. It sounds, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Lita Ford was inspired by the song because it sounds a heck of a lot like uh, the chord changes for If You Close uh, My Eyes Forever. Hmm, okay. The, the, the song she sang with, with Ozzy or the duet, or if you want to call it that. Um, but then also too, in a cool way, those harmonized guitar parts remind me of some of the stuff that uh, Metallica did on uh, Fade to Black. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's a similar tone, a similar, you know, harmonized you know, section there as well. But it also reminds me of stuff that, you know, bands like Iron Maiden were doing at the time in Scorpions, too. So it's it's sort of of the era, but maybe you know, influential on, on songs, you know, that came after it. Um, but, you know, funny, too, about that, that the lyric at the end, or the, the vocal at the end, it's so it's so nice. You know, it could have been like the <laughs> Lamb of God, you know, take away the sins of the world. But it wasn't that. It was God bless the children of the beast. You know, it's, like, it's right. such a, you know, it's almost like reading a hymnal in a way. And, you know, but. You know, when you read the lyric, you're like, oh, all right, back to the story, you know, okay, <laughs> intermission, back to where, you know, the, the, the musical journey that we're on. 
Yeah, I, I agree. It's a nice music way to cleanse the palate, if you will, you know, yeah. before you get back to the, the hard, aggressive rock and roll. And this is the first time we've really seen a quote-unquote gothic side to Motley Crue, uh, which is, is great to see. And I mean, in terms of the line itself, God bless the children of, of the beast, in a sense, you to believe in any aspect of, of Satanism or, you know, or the beast, you really have to be a Christian. And <laughs> so, because otherwise the devil is just God with a bad PR agent. And, you yeah. know, so I, I think it, it's sort of a play upon that. Um, going into the one cover on the album, Helter Skelter. It seems a little bit like filler. I mean, I don't really, you know, I've, I've, um, I've always liked the Beatles version of it. I don't necessarily like the update because I like the sort of weird full bodied, you know, lots of production with the, you know, the, you know, the sound in the Beatles version, um, you know, the heavy bottom end and all that kind of stuff in that one. And that's kind of missing from this one. Um, and uh, when we, I was playing it in the car and my uh, Jack was like, what's, who does the original one? I mean, he knows, but you know, he's now what, six generations removed from the Beatles or something. And I was like the Beatles. And, and he was like, Oh yeah, the, the Manson murder guy. And he was going to write that, you know, was, of course he knows the whole story behind the song. So I think, uh, and then I think there's even some sort of, again, I think I got this from Wikipedia, so don't, it may not be right, but um, you know, uh, Nikki six says that he counts it as one of his favorite songs, but it's still a little bit, um, uh, he thinks the Beatles were kind of wimpy. Um, so I don't know how that makes me feel, but again, it fits with the tone of the story of the whole devil worshiping thing or evil, because the song has such a attribution to the Manson murders beyond really the song itself. I mean, if you really listen to the song, it doesn't really have anything to do with, you know, it's, it's just a, someone having a bad day. <laughs> You know what I mean? Or, uh, you know, or, or I get to the bottom, then I go back up the top, then I do it again. You know what I mean? It's, you know, is that, is he happy there? Or is he just discussing the constant, you know, repetition of his days? Um, you know, she may be a lover, but she ain't no dancer. You know, that's whatever. That's a good, interesting, imagistic line, but it doesn't really necessarily say anything about being evil or good, you know, um, so I, I don't know. I, I have I'm, I'm, I have mixed emotions on it. Part of me feels like it's filler. Part of me feels like it's supposed to go with the theme of the album, with this sort of vague satanic, you know, uh, thing that they were trying to go for because it, it references Manson. Um, and, you know, they're an L.A. band and, you know, they're trying to get all the L.A. stuff into the album, you know, um, but it doesn't know in terms of its performance, it doesn't, you know, the Beatles version is better by far. I mean, there's just so much more going on in that Beatles version with the, even with the, I got blisters on my fingers at the end, you know what I mean? Like you just can't, you just can't top the Beatles version. Mike. I'm going to sound like a real musical idiot. Um, but I remember when I got this record, I didn't realize initially that it was a cover of the Beatles song. Like it's, mm. to me, it sounded so vastly different from the Beatles version in a way, mm -hmm. which, you know, the Beatles version is obviously original. So it's, you know, how can you top that? You can't. But 
what you do is you make it sound bigger or, you know, you make it sound like your band when you're playing it. You know, if you listen to the Beatles version, there's a lot of out of tune guitars and, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's the vocals, you know, I'm not cutting the Beatles. I'm no Beatle. You know, they, they do what they do and uh, they were killer at it, but um, it's, it's, it just sounds to me like it, it, they made it a Motley Crue song in a way because that riff is so powerful and they made it even more powerful in Nick's Planet. It's just killer. Um, but then it also reminds me too of, um, you know, we're all Pittsburgh guys. We're all familiar with, you know, Diamond Rio. They did a cover of this song as well in 76. And it sounds similar to the version that, you know, they did on, you know, on the Diamond Rio record in a way. It's, mm, okay. it's, it's heavier, it, you know, it's, it's a whole different thing, but I mean, how, you know, it, it takes, you know, big, you know, stuff to be able to cover the Beatles. And I, I think they accomplished that. They, they did it in a strong way. Uh, much like U2 did, you know, and U2 is a completely different band in terms of, you know, structure and the way they play songs. But both of those bands, you know, came up with a version of the Helter Skelter that sounds huge. You know, they're both essentially rock trios with a singer. Yeah. You know, again, if, if you can cover a Beatles song and it, and it sounds good and it doesn't sound like you're, you're in a cover band or you're playing karaoke or whatever, then hats off to you, man. You know, it's killer. But for me, it faked me out. It was, it sounded so different from the Beatles version. I didn't realize really realized it was a Beatles song that they were playing on the record. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, it lyrically, it's close enough to the sorts of things that Motley Crue is about in terms of living a sort of fast, helter-skelter kind of life and going to the top and crashing down and trying... And, uh, you know, the sexual tension of do you don't want... you want me to love you mm -hmm. and... Uh, dancers and all that that was a part of their lifestyle that that I buy it like I mm -hmm. you know I I think it's it's a good cover I mean it sounded great live when they played it too so red hot this is my favorite song on the album <laughs> I love it I mean I love the I love the lyrics I love the delivery I love Mick Mars' solo in it um I love the way that it starts uh, I love that line. We blow our minds out on your truth. Um, we, you know, we, now the interesting thing about the lyrics is, is that I looked up uh, the kids scream fight through the night or the kids scream fright through the night. I believe it's the kids scream in fright through in the fright night. Through the night. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's what, that's what the lyric sheet said. So I was sort of interested because that makes it even more interesting because then he states that they love it. You know what I mean? Which again is like what it is to be a teenager um, you know, that you're sort of terrified of the real world, but then you also love the terror. Um, yeah, it's, it's like my favorite freaking song on the album. I can't get enough of it. It's, um, I, I, I you know what I mean? Like I could just go, on, I'm not going to go on for hours about everything, but in terms of lyrically, it's all there. Musically, it's all there. There's just nothing wrong with it. Um, even the, you know, Ooh, you know, it's, it's great. Like, that we sort of talk about these, you know, um, recordings as an album. This is a great way to start at the second side of the record. I mean, killer double bass drum uh, intro. That pick slide is probably, you know, the second longest pick slide other than Ted Nugent's uh, pick slide in Stranglehold. It goes on forever. How do you, you know, it's like, how do you, there's not that much string. How do you, how do, you do that? It's amazing. Just keep looping um, it. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. I'm sure there's studio tricks, right? But uh, but then again, that guitar tone is so rude. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think Mick is known as a guy that you know, uses overdrive pedals 
in his rig when he's playing. I think he just cranks up his Marshall and does what he does. But that, that is a nutty guitar tone, man. It's so full and so intense, so chugging. But also when he goes to that sort of second part of the intro riff, it's like that. It reminds me of Master Puppets from Metallica in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that they, you know, they use the the lyric "Shout the Devil" in the song as well. Mm-hmm. Sort of revisit in, in the second verse. The solo is classic Mick again with the sort of triple harmonized uh, guitar solo. It's a it's a great. I mean, my goodness, you know, again in a, a thirty minute record, thirty four, you know, thirty minutes plus. You know, this is such a well-structured record. They were on fire with this thing. And this is a great way to kick off the second side. And I remember, you know, because I don't know about you guys, the first time I saw them was uh, Theater of Pain. I didn't see them on this tour. But I remember uh, on Theater of Pain, they had sort of Mick introduce the song. And, you know, he would, I swear to God, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he introduced the song by saying Red Hot through like a, a guitar talk box or something. Or he went It was like a voice synthesizer or something. So he sounded very satanic. It was like, you know, what do you want? What do you want to play, Mick Mars? And he goes, Red Hot. Yeah, and it sounded crazy. You yeah. know, and, yeah. I mean, that, that was, was one of the yeah. coolest you know, concert moments of my life. I mean, that, that left a mark on me. He's like, whoa, man, that's, that's scary. That's jarring. You know, I like that. You know? <laughs> You have a killer tune, man. I mean, my goodness. You know, this band was, you know, again, it's really three guys, you know, that are, you know, playing bass, drums, and guitar, and a singer, and they just sound this full, you know, good for them. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it's really a, a wonderfully subversive song. You know, it's, it, I mean, in, in terms of when they talk about lines like, see what evil brings, you know, the, the idea that, you know, all of your society's morality and religion we're willing to question all of it and maybe throw it all out, right? I mean, the idea of rock as a social movement, um, there's a great quote from Nikki where he says, you know, all of our audience members are sluts, the guys and the girls alike, but that's okay. We don't think any less of them. They're gonna go on to be the future leaders of America, right? And there was this thing in the 80s too where, um, you know, Dee Schneider talks about it in the day of the rocker, right? This idea that this metal generation is going to take over society and come into power and make it better. And to me, the most key line in the song is, we've laughed at your wars. That's a heavy, heavy line. You know, the idea that that thing that you take most seriously, that you may have sacrificed your life for that defines you and your generation means nothing to us, right? That's a line in the sand. That's something that, although the PMRC probably couldn't articulate it, that's Mm -hmm. a direct generational threat, right? I mean, that's like from when they say in Fight Club, you know, we have no great war, great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. That's like the battle cry of Generation X right there. Yeah, great point. Yeah, right, yeah, we laugh Good at your wars, we've blown our minds out on your truth, yeah. It's, it was such a, such a big thing to hear when you're like 13 years old, you know what I mean? Yeah. And this in, you know, in little condensed you know, three minute songs, you know, it's, this is a great band. I think of it in terms of like all hell's breaking loose by kiss and how much more direct and how much more powerful a song it is than all hell's breaking loose. You know what I mean? In terms of like what it's saying, how, how pointed it is, 
how each lyric has, you know, like a very serious meaning behind it. You know what I mean? Like there's just so much more to that song. It's, and it, it harkens back to the fact that, you know, even Nikki Six maintains that Motley Crue was a punk band. You know what I mean? Not necessarily a metal band. I mean, there's some interview I saw on YouTube where he was like, shout at the devil is we accidentally made a heavy metal album, you know, and right. you're like, what? You know, I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense, but you know, I mean, you're so closely associated with metal, you know, that I don't, um, but uh, the, you know, but he maintains they were punk band and that song, you know, totally talks, you know, taps into that sort of punk aesthetic. Well, I, I think very early on, Nikki Six was very hyper-conscious about the idea that the audience has a short attention span and mm. that the worst thing that a band can do is get pigeonholed into any one thing, right? Like as much as they had perhaps the strongest image they've ever had in their career, I don't think they wanted to be in Kiss's position of being in their 60s and 70s and wearing the same kinds of outfits and putting on the makeup and wearing wigs to try to make themselves look like they did when they were in their 20s. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, it's almost yeah. it's like he took the Madonna thing of like every two years, we're going to reinvent ourselves. We're going to change up how we look, how we sound. The opposite approach of like an ACDC album. Right, where ACDC is like McDonald's. You buy an ACDC album, you know exactly what you're going to get. And yeah, sure, some are better than others, but it's still all exactly the same thing. Unless they forget them ranches in their kids' mail. Well, they fuck you at the drive through, but yeah. <laughs> Anyhow. ACDC drive through album. Oh my yeah. God, there's a podcast. All right. <laughs> Uh, too young to fall in love. Uh, yeah, again, lots of good imagery. I love that riff, you know, um, I love the chorus. Um, I can't, I mean, I can't pick out anything specific for it. I mean, it's got that, you know, that great riff, you know, the dun, 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 dun you know, and then the, um, uh, you know, um, your love's a, gu a guillotine. I'm killing you. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, uh, it's sort of the back and forth between like, you know, we're in this relationship and we can't, you know, I'm too young to really fall in love and we're just going to be at each other's, uh, you know, you're going to be killing me. I'm going to be killing you. You know what I mean? It's just going to be this sort of, this is a bad idea. I'm too young to get involved in this. And, but just musically, it's such a great riff. It's just so, ah, yeah, I love it. Mike. Yeah, this, I mean, when you, this is one of the songs when you, when you first hear it, you kind of think, is this, this song so good that, is this a cover song? Is this something I've heard before? It's so well done. I mean, that drum intro, you know, with all due respect, you know, it reminds me of, you know, the beginning of I Love It Loud, mm. the Creatures record, you know, but still. And that riff is so great because it really became, again, you know, the blueprint for songs like, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, they, that they, this is a point of reference, but I think of... Um, uh, the Ozzy tune, uh, Shot in the Dark. It's the same kind of thing where you're doing like the, the pedal tone over the, you know, the chord changes. It's an A minor thing. And mm. it's such a great, it's almost like keyboard chords on guitar too, in a way. You know, Mick is, doesn't get enough credit in terms of, you know, how he can make a simple riff 
sound like it's more than it is. You know, it's very like, you know, it's very well orchestrated between and especially with the way that it interplays with the bass. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know we mentioned this too before. You know, bands like Styx would make um, you know a simple riff sound you know like it's more complicated than it is. And when you when you play, you're like, well, it sounds simple when I play it, but when Mick plays it, it sounds better. How does that work? I don't understand. I still don't. But, you know. uh, but that chorus is killer. Um, you know, and uh, in some ways too, we mentioned before we got into the you know the podcast, there are definitely some other people singing background vocals in the chorus. And if it's the mm. band, then hats off to them because somebody in, in that chorus has a really unique voice that you know bolsters that chorus in a way. Um, I'd love to know who that is, but you know I can't find anything to, to confirm that. Um, but you know, um, too, with some you know again, we mentioned some of these lyrics are you know kind of they're dark and I like the fact that they're dark, you know, things like, you know, not a woman, but a whore. And now I'm killing you. Watch your face turn blue. I mean, this is a rated R movie and I like it. You know, it's, it's great. It's, it's, it's not, you know, lick it up, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, you know, you could play it safe and you could take chances. And I like the fact that they take chances when it comes to writing lyrics on this record. And there's a time where I didn't think that was cool, but now I appreciate that because we're never going to hear a record like this again, you know? So I, no. it, it, again, it's almost like a pop song, on if you want to call it a metal record, and that works. It's almost like no wonder, you know, when things got into more like pop metal and cheese metal later that they took that approach. Mm-hmm. Whereas it worked for Motley, and it, it's convincing in this case. But you know, things that followed were they as, as convincing? Probably not, in my opinion. Yeah, I you know I think one of the criticisms of young people since Romeo and Juliet and before is that of course they have no perspective on young relationships and they're too young to know what love is really about and they're too young to fall in love and and that's been the the parental line since time you know began uh, and one of the things that you do as when somebody's saying something negative about you to reclaim your own power is you own it and you agree with it and you extrapolate the implications of it. And that's to me what Nikki Six is doing in the song is saying, yeah, you know what? I am too young to fall in love and probably too narcissistic and self-centered to be in a giving loving relationship. (laughs) And so therefore, you know, this is what happens and this is why I can't be in a real relationship. And uh, the whole line about your love's a guillotine totally plays into the whole Freudian castration anxiety thing. You know, Nikki's totally into psychology and what with primal scream therapy in in the song primal scream later on. I love the line, you've got one-way eyes, because you know that what it means is you can only see things from your perspective. But if you think about it, everybody's got one-way eyes. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, right. I don't know if it has, you know, I mean, I have four eyes because I'm blind, but you know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Again, too, I like the fact that, um, you know, whether it was a direct, you know, if it was on purpose or not, I don't know, but if they include the, um, just a punk in the street line. You know, yes, from uh, Aerosmith. You know, last Child Aerosmith. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's a great line either way, and it works in both cases. Well, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. Absolutely. Knock them dead, kid. Again, more references to blades that are red. Uh, again, I mean, it just like Vince yields total TKO. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, that core or whatever. That's great. Um, 
I, I like it a lot. I mean, I guess I read up on the story and the, the story behind the song. And it's apparently like what Nick, Nikki fighting against a bunch of hell's angels or something. So Nikki six uh, and Tommy Lee. And I think, uh, well, Nikki six and I'm not sure if it was Tommy or Vince were at the rainbow and Nikki was with Lita Ford and the other member of the band was with a girl and some of the other people at the rainbow started saying things to them and supposedly Nikki and uh, the other guy said, Hey, why don't we take this outside? And they were dressed mm. as bikers and Nikki thought they were hell's angels and they started fighting, but actually they were undercover members of the LAPD. And so Nikki um, found that out. They, they flashed their badges at him. They arrested him. They beat the fuck out of him. They put him in jail. And the only way that uh, Doc McGee was able to get him out was to say to the cops, listen, yes, you, you, you've got him dead to rights assaulting a police officer. It's his word against yours. <laughs> But here's the thing. Motley Crue's got a big show in a couple of days. We can give you all the profits from the show under the table <laughs> if you just forget about this and make it go away. And that's what they did. So that's, <laughs> that's the story behind this song. Wow. Well, still a good song. I mean, I like it. <laughs> but, um, but again, that fits yeah. in with the whole... Um, LA is a dark, dark place theme of the album. You know what I mean? It's definitely yeah. keeps that theme going. The story makes it even darker. Um, yeah, no, I like, I like the song. It stands out. It stands out to me. It's not, you know, it's not my favorite on the album, but it's still pretty cool. Mike. Funny though. I mean, my goodness, you know, great song, but even better manager, you know, and, and yeah. that <laughs> off, my goodness, that, that's the kind of guy you want in your corner, you know, but then again, maybe, you know, people shouldn't get in trouble, but either way, um, <laughs> you know, from a musical perspective, you know, there are pivotal points in my life, you know, that have changed my guitar playing. And this, this riff was one of those, because um, mm. if you can do that kind of, you know, pedal tone like riff and still do the chugging rhythm at the same time, while well, you know, the bass line is changing, but you know, the guitar player is playing the same chords. You know, for me, it was either this or Iron Maiden Live After Death. Like, those helped me with my picking, my right hand picking tremendously as a guitar player. Okay. And this is, you know, one of those just classics where, you know, we call it like, you know, blueprints for a metal riff. It works. Uh, it tells a great story. Um, you know, but I've also mentioned that there's sometimes where you say, thank goodness they printed the lyrics because Vince's, you know, delivery of the lyrics makes you wonder, you know, what is he saying? There's a lot of visuals in this song, as I was trying to say. There's things like, you know, I'm supercharged, I might explode in your face, and, and lines like a steel-belted scream. And those are great lyrics with a visual attached to it. It's, again, great songwriting overall. It's, it works, and it's a great, again, that shout-along chorus that works. I mean, you, you would be there singing along to this song, even if you didn't know the words, if you saw them live. It's, it's killer. Yeah, I think the song really captures the feel of being in a fight too. The way that everything is just, you see things in flashes and things are happening. You don't ha even have time to process them fully for what they are. I love the line, the blade is red kid because immediately you go, wait, why is the blade red? 
right. that my blood? Is that their blood? Is it both right. our blood? You know, like what is yeah, it? His blood on me or what's going on? Yeah. Right. I also love the, I mean, you know, he basically gets his ass kicked at the end of, of the song, right? And he says, you see the red in my eyes, you're going to take my disease, right? It's not, he's not bragging about what a tough guy he is, or this is the way that you should be living your life, right? He's saying, this is fucked up and this happened to me. This is not what you want to have happen to you. I mean... Yeah. It, once again, playing upon that whole idea of what's right for me isn't right for everyone, you know, that this is a disease to be avoided. Yeah. And to think of, you know, I mean, there, there are sports, right? And the fact that boxing to this day is, is still a sport that, that goes on is amazing to me. Like you can put two guys in a ring and they're going to you know, beat the living crap out of each other. You know, how does that still go on? I don't know. But if you watch a, a boxing match, you know, the, the announcer gets excited. It's a, it's a TKO. He's excited about it. It's almost like he's on the sidelines, you know, calling you know, the plays. Like, you know, one, two, he's, he's, he's counting himself out. That's the end of it. It's, right. And the uh, argument again, is that that's the purest sport where the, the, the point yeah. is to bring the other opponent closer to death than he is able to bring you. Yes, which is why we all don't play team sports. No. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer not to get my ass kicked if I can avoid it. <laughs> right. 10 seconds to love. Uh, this is, I actually skipped this song, which is, I, this album is killer to me, but I just really don't like it. I mean, it's, it's got a good, you know, riff to it in the song, but I just didn't, I don't really like it um, anymore. I find it vaguely offensive. Um for some reason, even though I can listen to like Kiss songs with lots of sexual innuendo in them, for some reason, I just can't get past the first cup, you know, first verse of this or whatever. So not my favorite. Feels like filler, even though it's still a good song. You know what I mean? But um, to me on this album, it's to me, it's the weakest song. Mike? Yeah, I'm also the guy that, you know, I can appreciate a song for the riff and the music. And if, if the lyric is going to be sort of, you know, cliche, sexual innuendo, you know, I can sort of look beyond that and say, okay, well, at least you still got a good riff. I remember this is one of my favorite songs to play on guitar when I, when I got this record. Um, you know, so there's something that worked for me on that level, but you know, yeah, it's probably lyrically probably the most you know, derivative and, and, and weak on the record, if you will, um, because it's, it's got a narrow focus. You know, we get it. I mean, Aerosmith probably did a better version when they did, you know, Love in an Elevator. It was a little more clever and blah, blah, blah. But either way, I mean, you know, it's, I, I find it entertaining too that when you look at the lyric sheets, you know, there's like the talk sections, you know, where he's like, you know, just, you know, it's, it's like, okay, now we need like a narrative in a song. Okay. But cool, because if you're going to go to, a, you know, a, th a theater performance and they're going to lay, you know, outlay the, uh, you know, the program for the day and you read, okay, this is, you know, the singing part and this is the talking part. I, you know, I like the fact that they pay that much attention to detail say, we're going to talk now in this song and <laughs> here's what we're talking. Yeah. This is right. talk. Yes, uh, it's, a, it's a dialogue. But at the same time, I agree, John, it's probably, you know, the weakest lyrically, but I think musically it still stands up um, as a song, um, you know, if you just look at it from the music perspective. 
Well, to me, this is like one of the classic all-time sleazy rock songs. I mean, not since Rolling Stone's Stray Cat Blues, yeah. you know, when they said, so you've got a girlfriend and she's wilder than you, <laughs> you know. And uh, I, to me, I, I, and it's got the classic Nikki Six turnaround, the thing happening yeah. in it. Um, I mean, on one hand, it's almost anti-cliche in that he's not bragging about like, I'm going to rock you all night long. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's about having a quickie, right? Like uh, in, either in an elevator and sort of touches on group sex and taking pornographic Polaroids and bragging about your sexual conquests to the boys on the subway or whatever. But um, it's, it's definitely sexist, but it's kind of post-feminist sexist because, you know, even for all that, he still thinks to ask, did you fire this round? So, you know, there's there's a certain concern about the woman's sexual satisfaction, even if it's, you know, within a 10 second tryst. Because <laughs> Vince cares, man. Well, yeah, for at least whoever wrote the lyrics cares. But either way, yeah. no, yeah. I, see, I see your point, I see your point. Anyhow, um, and it's funny to me that they talk about how there are supposedly voices in here of them having sex with girls in the studio. I can't hear oh. anything, which I think is brilliant and probably the point that you can like listen to this song with a magnifying glass trying to hear those sounds and those voices and you and you hear nothing versus what Guns N' Roses would go on to do during Rocket Queen, where they yeah. actually had the voices, obviously, there and for all to hear the um did you finish the interview with tom worman there's like an outtake at the end of one of them where they the interviewer goes so the story is is that they actually uh vince neal brought some girl in there and had sex while they were recording that song and uh worman just goes no that's absolutely not true yeah like he just shuts it down like right that is absolutely did not happen i mean he's like it's really funny Right. Well, there's that whole thing, that message on the album. Uh, do you have the out copy of the album right there, Mike? You could read it. Well, mine doesn't have the label on it, though. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. so you don't have the, the high sticker. Yeah. The insert. Do you have the insert where it oh. says in the credits, uh, this album was recorded on Bombay Gin Quaalude? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll read it to you. Okay. This album was recorded on Foster's Lager, Budweiser. Bombay Gin, you're loaded already. <laughs> Lots of Jack Daniels. If you need more, you know, enhancement, Kahlua and Brandy, Quackers and Krell and Wild Women, the crew. Right, and Krell was their nickname for cocaine. So yeah, there you go. So there you go. Meanwhile, I had like a vodka <laughs> drink the other day, and I was hungover for the whole next day. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyhow, fuck <laughs> um, <laughs> on. Yeah. Danger. I like this song a lot. It tells the um, what's funny is when I was a kid, I think I read it as the story of a woman or whatever. I didn't pay too much attention to the lyrics. Uh, went back to it. It's interesting that they, so it's sort of about them um, and how they sort of come to terms with living in LA, 10 long years. Um, I'm interested, the chorus that you're in trouble with, the boys are around or in t around. Uh, who are the boys? Are they the boys? 
Are they, are you in danger because you're around them because of the terrible life that they've had? You know what I mean? The, the struggle that they've gone through, but it definitely, I mean, it's a nice way to cut, close out the album. It sort of feels like this is them talking about their experience in LA. It keeps the whole um, Los Angeles theme of the album. Um, Vince's vocals sound a little weird in him, uh, like he's trying too hard. I think he sings nasally, um, which I mean, you know, you, you know, he definitely does. Yeah, he sings partially through his nose. That's how. Yeah, he gets his which tone. I guess is you know, I mean, don't every doesn't every vocal coach tell you not to do that? But whatever he, but in this song, his voice sounds a little weak in places. But I still really like the song. I mean, lyrically, it stays together, and you know, um, it's a it's a good song. I like it. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, um, this song, I didn't really pay that much attention to when I got the record as a kid, only because it, it seemed a little too, you know, maybe high drama for me. And it seemed like, you know, but, but now listen to, it, I think the song should have been placed earlier in, in, the, in the album sequence. I think, you know, mm. much like Paul Stanley did with uh, his solo album 78, he placed, you know, like a dramatic song at the end of, you know, the side one. Mm. Or he put like a dramatic song, you know, like second song you know, on, on side two. I think this, this song would have been recognized more so had it been placed earlier in the record. Um, but, you know, to John's point about Vince's uh, singing, or, you know, his approach to the, to the, the vocal part, this song's in, in a sort of, a, you know, a strange key for Motley Crue because mostly they'll play things like in, you know, A or, or G or E. And this is something that, you know, I know they tune down a whole step, but it'd be like him singing in D, you know, which is kind of, you know, D minors, you know, we go down the, the spinal tap route. It's it's up there in range. So no wonder it sounds different in terms of vocal approach. But one of the things that I appreciate about the song more so now that I listen to it is I'm a fan of songs that have these sort of haunting intros. Mm -hmm. um, and when I put on this song uh, this week, I thought, what does this remind me of? And I, one of my, you know, favorite, like, you know, B-side so, B songs on uh, the first Boston records is, is, a, is a song called Something About You which has a sort of haunting intro with, you know, these minor chords and oohs and ahs and stuff. And, uh, you know, that, that's cool. And then it goes into like a heavier, you know, riff. Um, also too, the intro reminds me of the Scorpion song Holiday. Yeah. I you know, got that. the D minor thing. There's a lot of cool chord changes here. And it also reminds me of, again, somebody playing, let's say, piano chords and chord changes on guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, what I, bottom line is what I appreciate, appreciate about the song is that it is dramatic and it sounds like, they're writing about themselves. You know, you're in danger when the boys are in town. This is my town. This is Hollywood, you know, and they're, they're conflicted with it. Cause you know, what do they say? You know, I, I can't escape. I can't escape or I've escaped finally in the end, you know, it's almost like, you know, tragedy to triumph in a way. And I think it tells a great tale, but just the placement of the song on the record, it, it deserves an earlier placement on, on the record. I think, I think it's, it's, it's great. There's like so much about the song that I love now because again, too, uh, with crazy, you know, and interesting chord changes, if you listen to uh, the Journey record Infinity, there's a song called Wind of March, uh, Winds of March on that record. And those chord changes in the chorus get into like some weird kind of little diminished things, you know, crazy chord changes, but it, it adds so much drama to it. And it just, it reminds me so much of uh, some of my other favorite bands. And when I can hear that in, you know, in a band and it'll make me think of other songs and other bands that I love, to me, that's a sign of a good song because it sounds like Motley, but yes, it, if you really delve in, it sounds like some other bands as well, but either way, it works on this record. 
and I love it. It's it's almost my my favorite song on the album at this point because I haven't heard it in so long and I've now rediscovered it. I, I dig it. I agree. To me, this is like a lost classic. If there's one song that I wish they would drag out and play live yeah. uh, on the reunion tour whenever it happens, yeah. uh, it's this song because they've never played it live. And it might be my favorite Molly Crew song, actually. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, to me, I hear it as kind of very cinematic noir kind of thing, playing upon the whole idea of the band as a gang, you know, and, and kind of ruling Hollywood. And uh, I, I love the, the build that like that, that half step build is just so, so intense and lyrically, Probably some of my favorite lyrics of Nikki's are um, tattooed lies, distant eyes, Hollywood. It's been 10 long years of tears and fears. The end is near. And it, to me, that's so brilliant because it's completely ambiguous. You don't know if that's a good thing, the end is near, or yeah. it it's a terrible thing, right? I mean, it's very much along the lines of the road diverged in a wood and I, I took the road less traveled by and that has made all the difference. Well, mm -hmm. okay, but is that a good thing or a bad thing? And the fact that it could be interpreted in either is brilliant. I mean, it's a level of ambiguity that you just don't see in too many rock songs. You know, Worman had a philosophy. You, you start off an album with the two best songs. You start mm. off the side B with another great song and you end with a great song. And I think this album conforms to his philosophy in terms of the track listing. I agree, Dave. And, and you know, I, I, I should probably know more about Motley's history, but I, you know, I, I assume maybe in the early days they played this song live. I mean, maybe in the club days, I have no idea. But either way, it's, the reason I bring that up is whether they did it or not, if you would hear this song in a club, it would, there'd be no talking. You know, it, would, it would gather so much attention. It, you, know, it's, it's, you know, you can beat people over the head with a, with a great heavy song and they're gonna say, I dig it now, I'm into it. And they're gonna do the fist pound. But I could see this song winning over an audience in, in a club for sure. Yeah, the, the only line in the song that kind of sticks out to me is maybe not being the best choice is when he says, uh, from riches to sin, right? Because, yeah, and but it kind of actually makes sense within the context of Motley Crue because Vince Neil, the first woman that he married, uh, was a millionaire, right? So she uh, had a lot of money and got him into like injecting cocaine and stuff very early on. Um, <laughs> so from that perspective, I guess it, it does sort of tie into their whole story, even though they weren't talking about that aspect of it at the time. Hmm. Hmm. Or were they sort of, you know, thinking forward, like, you know, when we are successful, you know, is it going to go from, you know, riches to sin? You never know, you know? Right. Yeah, that's the other way to look at it. So, so you guys didn't see the Shout at the Devil tour. I'm the only one that did, right? Yeah, they opened for Ozzy, right? They played two shows, actually, and I saw both of them. Where were those shows? That was in Pittsburgh, right? So so I saw them... What venue? 
Okay, I saw them first at the Civic Arena. Wasted went on first, and then they played, and then Ozzy. And, and that was what, what Ozzy's tour? Was that um, Park at the Moon? Park at the Moon. Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, cool. and that was an amazing show. Um, if you want to see wow. close to what it was like, there's a bootleg of them playing, like in I think Quebec or Montreal, Canada. That okay. they they do that, but like they played for like. 80 90 minutes i mean wow. it, it was like if it happened today it would be considered a co-headlining tour because uh they played for so long and they had a full stage show i mean they had like the the burnt out city background and they had explosions and fire and smoke machines and like it was wow. it was i mean enough of a show that if they had been headlining it you wouldn't have gone home disappointed and i I vividly remember so much about that show. I mean, just the fact that like for the first time, like you had the drummer talking to the audience and not just, not just Vince, you know, and, and, and I, I got handed a flyer that, that said, you know, attention crew heads, you know, uh, you, as you probably know, the local radio stations aren't playing nearly enough Motley Crue. Well, the airwaves are ours and we're taking over. And it had like a list of all the local radio stations to call to demand that they play more Motley Crue. And, uh, wow. you know, I, I remember like Tommy Lee saying, oh, you know, we're going to be back to kick your asses soon, Pittsburgh. And it was just, it was so... I literally had to go home that night and say to myself, can I still consider Kiss my favorite band? Because wow. it was such an unbelievably impressive show. I mean, on all levels from like the songs to the banter to every aspect of it, it just blew me away. Like, wow. you know, and to me, it was kind of like they were our generation's Kiss because it was a band that I was seeing coming up on the way in their prime, you know? Yeah. And then they came back and they played the Stanley Theater headlining uh, with Accept opening. And oh. I was there. And that was, I remember being in the audience waiting for the show to start and Tommy Lee pokes his head through the curtain and like looks out at the audience in full makeup and just, you know, <laughs> closes the curtain and stuff. And it was just, it was so completely in tune with the personality of the guys that I had been reading about and Circus Magazine and Hip Parader and all that kind of stuff. And, and again, unbelievably loud show. It was so loud that after the show, when we had to use the pay phones to call <laughs> our parents to come pick us up. We couldn't do it because nobody, everybody's ears were ringing so loud. We couldn't hear if there was a dial tone. I mean, it was, like, it was crazy how loud that show was. Wow. Well, you're lucky. You're, you're so lucky. That's yeah. So I would have loved to see that. Damn. Yeah. It was, it was great stuff. But like I said, the closest you can get, watch the uh, the bootleg that's online, Montreal. That's pretty. That's pretty close. Check that. Right. So, any final thoughts? Summing up, shout at the devil. No, just a great classic album that I'm glad I got to revisit. Yeah, killer classic album. I mean, my goodness, you know, th th this this was their second album, you know, and it was successful as it was. And I think you know, Nikki even said like, you know, you can have an album with no no real promo behind it and no label support and still sells you know four or five million records you know and it was 
you know, up to Motley, Motley did that. Electra Records didn't do that. You know, they, they delivered with this record. And it's, again, it's only a little over 30 minutes, but you know, there's no dead air, no dead space in this record, you know, really. I mean, it's a, it's a great package, great songwriting, great band. And you know, no wonder that they became as successful as they did. It's interesting you brought up that quote because I think on some level it's true. Uh, Electra Records got a new president uh, after Motley Crue was signed, who was not a fan of the band and wanted nothing more than to drop them as soon as possible. And I think Too Fast for Love sold just enough that he couldn't quite get away with it, but he wanted to drop them with Shout of the Devil. But Shout of the Devil sold so much right out of the gate that he really couldn't drop them. And actually, I I question Nikki's assessment that Elektra isn't partially responsible for this album's massive success because there's a TV commercial for this album, okay? Um, which, by the way, is incredibly racist against the <laughs> Japanese people because if you and you can find it on YouTube and stuff, it's it's basically like they there are these Japanese scientists that that have these parents and they're they're putting headphones on them and they're testing them and you know uh, they're playing Shout at the Devil and and then the parents like you hate it and their ears start smoking and the Japanese scientists are saying like oh yes you'll see you know Motley Crue shout at the devil perfect album you know parents hate it or whatever you know it's just it's horrible but how many albums had tv commercials at that time like none so yeah good point eventually good point. i think motley crew got the benefit of a pretty heavy publicity campaign to make this album as successful as it was but not right off the bat i could see that yeah and again there's also the artist perspective you know like you know the, the brand label has to put the thing out but you know they're not writing the songs they're not writing the lyrics you know so they're not playing it either way it, it, it worked either way and maybe it was a, a team effort but in some respects but no wonder again if you look at the record itself and let's do it from front to back it, it, it's kick-ass from beginning to end agreed so next up we'll take a look at theater of pain Oh, yeah. 